I start the message, want you to check out this video. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. like. Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. 
But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, we're going to continue this series, Kingdom Justice. This is part two of four. We're spending the month of January talking about justice, kingdom justice. Uh, Last week, we laid out um, uh, kind of an overview of the series, talking about why it's difficult to talk about justice. That That was last week. Why is it difficult to talk about justice, um, and, then, and then why is it important to talk about justice? Why justice is not optional for God's people, as this video just depicted. Um, uh, if you haven't uh, seen that first part, or watched it, or listened to it from last week, I urge you to, to do that, um, because there are many reasons why it can be difficult in our current climate to discuss justice, and yet it is so important as followers of Jesus. He has called us to, the, the gospel is, is the good news that Jesus made a way for us to be part of his kingdom. His kingdom is going to come in the future in its fullest. It's going to be a kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness. And so he calls us now to represent that kingdom, to represent our king in the broken world through our character, through the, the power of the spirit working in us, giving us joy and peace, but also uh, doing justice. Um, and so uh, next or two weeks from now, just to give you a heads up, we're going to talk about justice for the sexually exploited, we're going to talk about human trafficking. We've got a guest speaker coming in from an organization that we support called Destiny Rescue. Um, definitely be here for that one. Next week, we're going to talk about justice for the unborn. Uh, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, we've got two testimonies that are very personal uh, from people in our church. I urge you to be here for that one as well. Um, today, today is Martin Luther King's birthday. Many of you guys are off tomorrow or off from school, off from work for his birthday. It was November of 1983 when Ronald Reagan signed into law making Martin Luther King's birthday a federal holiday. 
He is one of only three people to have a federal holiday named after him in America. The first two being Christopher Columbus and George Washington. Um, Martin Luther King obviously was not a perfect man. He had his flaws and his issues and his sins like all of us do. Uh, but he was a man called to bring the implications of the gospel to bear on particular justice issues of his time through civil disobedience, through a willingness to suffer, and through a refusal to retaliate. During a time when uh, many in the black community were apathetic and saying, hey, we, we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to make things worse, he had the courage to rock the boat. But at a time when others on the other extreme, activists had become radical and extremists and violent and, and hateful towards whites, he stood up against them as well. In fact, when his home was attacked, somebody threw a bomb at his home, there was a crowd that ended up gathering around him uh, of black men and women saying, let's go get him, let's seek revenge, we got, you. we got your back. He said to them, I'm going to read a quote, he said, don't get panicky, if you have weapons, take them home. We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. In other words, in other words, in other words, and this is important for anybody who, who um, uh, it cares about any particular justice issue, Martin Luther King refused to allow righteous indignation turn into self-righteous vindictiveness. And that stands in contrast to so many of the uh, uh, self-professed justice warriors of today and even uh, of Martin Luther King's time. There is a righteous indignation that God's put on our hearts when we see something wrong, when we see something that makes us angry. It's okay to be angry at that. But too often, and I talked about this last week, the victims of oppression become the oppressors. We become per perpetrators of an injustice. And Martin Luther King was an example of someone who refused to allow that to happen in his own heart. This is something to keep in mind for any justice issue we talk about. Even next week, when we talk about justice for the unborn, we've heard stories of people who have bombed abortion clinics. That is evil stuff. That is evil stuff. And so, um, today, while I could have gone in many directions for Martin Luther King's birthday, and, and I, I was wrestling with a few, I was talking to Tom Sargent and actually uh, uh, Jeff Borkowski, and um, they helped me limit it down or narrow it down to a particular passage that was on my heart. Uh, and so what I'm going to be talking about is justice for the poor. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah 58 verses 1 through 12 today. Um, this, was, this was something that was certainly close to Martin Luther King's heart. Uh, in, in his time, many in the black community were kept in poverty through laws and legislation, prevented from getting loans and voting. Um, but he also had a heart for the poor in the world, for the poor in India. But more importantly, this is close to God's heart. God cares about the poor. I laid out last week how God all over scripture showed that he cared about and he stepped in for four Especially four groups of people. The poor, uh, the, the, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, and, and the poor. And so we want to talk, we can't talk about every justice issue, but we're going to talk uh, today about justice for the poor. And as I talked about last week, it's talk, you know, how it's difficult talking about justice. That's especially true with this topic. It's, it's, it's tough to discuss uh, justice for the poor for, for various reasons. Number one, there's many reasons why people are economically disadvantaged. 
For some, it has been because of laws that has prevented them from getting loans and, and, and such. Um, and for others, it, it might be because of laziness and complacency. And, and for others, it might be because of growing up in single-parent homes. There's a great disparity between people in homes who have two parents that, 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 that are married and, and those who grew up in single-parent homes. Uh, the stats are, are huge. Sometimes... It's because people are foreigners and there may not be laws keeping them down, but there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers that make it hard. This is why Delani uh, and Ivani are spearheading an ESL program, teaching the Hispanic community, those who are uh, not fluent in English, teaching them English so that they can get jobs, so that they can uh, cross some of the obstacles that they're facing. And so it, there's not one solution when there's multiple reasons why people are in poverty. And then, as many of you guys know, the poverty line in America uh, still allows folks to be, you know, many who are considered impoverished, in other words, in America, are still much richer than those, the average poor person in the world, right? We know this. Um, in the political arena, there's a lot of debates about what helps, or what hurts. Did the war on poverty under Johnson in the 60s that started back then, did that help or did that hurt? There's debates on that. We can argue back and forth about that. But even in the church, we go back and forth. What actually helps? I was talking to a pastor this past week about the displaced community in Lakewood. We've gone there, we've fed, we've closed. Uh, but he was saying that he stopped going there because the primary organizations or point people down there uh, don't appear to him to actually want to help them get out of that cycle and just want to care for the urgent needs. And so they're doing something for a different community, trying to help them with long term. So we can debate back and forth and that's what makes it difficult. And yet, God's heart is for the poor. So here's my promise to you. I'm not going to end this sermon by giving you three things to sign up for and three ways to go out there and do something. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I I've said last week, the, the goal isn't to get you to sign up for something or start giving to something. The goal is to get you to start praying about what you can do and what we should do. We want to start there in prayer. We want to start, well maybe before that, is for our hearts to break for what, God, for what breaks God's heart. And then that to lead us to prayer. And then prayer to lead us to know what to do, how to serve, where to give. And particular to the passage we're going to be in, I want us to see how sharing God's heart for the vulnerable actually affects our feeling close to him. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Some of us are discouraged, some of us are um, anxious, some of us have fears, and, and, and sometimes we wonder, God, why don't you feel close? And there is sometimes, not always time, but there's a, sometimes a correlation between us not sharing God's heart for vulnerable groups and then us not feeling close to his presence. So Lord Jesus, help us to hear from you through your word today. Help us to separate out anything that I say that is not helpful from what you have to say to us. Challenge us, encourage us, push us, invite us to live more fully in the way that Jesus paid for us to live, in the way that Jesus showed us how to live. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so Isaiah 58, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. 
Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. This is, the people of Israel are uh, in a time of experiencing God's, God's judgment. And Isaiah is one of the prophets that's calling them back to repentance. He's saying, hey guys, you're missing God's heart. You got to get back. And he warns them of God's impending justice and judgment. Um, but he also promises that beyond that judgment, there is going to be a future salvation for you. In this particular passage, he's speaking to the wealthy and the rich. Verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. So day after day. They seek me out. So the people of Israel appear to be seeking God. This is good things, right? We want True Life Church to seek God out. To be eager to know his ways. That phrase, as if. You see that in the, as if they were a nation that does what is right. That's as if God is saying, they're kind of playing the part. They appear to want to know my ways, but do they really? They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So they want God to come near. They want God's presence like all of us, right? We prayed for folks in hurting situations. There's heavy stuff that are weighing on people's lives and families. We want God to come near. We want him to draw near. I want his presence in a greater way. I was praying that for many of you this past week. Verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? So this is how the people were feeling. God, we, we fast, we humble ourselves, but you're not answering our prayers. You're not coming near. What's going on? Fasting, as many of you know, is afflicting yourself with hunger. You're going without food as a way to express your humility before God. And they were doing that. And yet they were not getting out of it what they were expecting. They were not getting the deliverance that they were expecting God to bring or the healing or the refreshing from God that they wanted. And so they're like, what the heck, God? We're doing this. We're humbling ourselves. We're not eating. Why aren't you answering? God continues. He's explaining to them. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. Remember, they're, they're rich folks. They have poor folks working for them. You are exploiting all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So God's like, you're, you're fasting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. It's good practice. But it's not leading to the change that I want to see in you. It's not leading to you changing how you're treating other people, particularly the people under you, the poor folks, the folks that you are in charge of. You're still exploiting them, oppressing them, taking advantage of them. You're still beating them. You're still arguing with each other. So how, why would I hear you? Why, why would you expect your voice to be heard on high? Fasting is meant to say, God, show me where I'm off. I want my heart to line up with your heart. Where is there sin in me that needs to be ripped out? And God's like, you guys aren't doing that. You're fasting in order to get me to do something for you, but you're not interested in changing and you're not really interested in aligning your heart with my heart. They were going through the motions. 
They were going through the motions while still treating their poor workers in oppressive ways. And God's saying, really? You want me to hear you? It's kind of like if my older daughter, Kayla, was just beating up our youngest, Tessa. And then she came to me and she said, Daddy, can I please go to my friend's house? I just cleaned my room. Now, did she ask nicely? Yeah. Did she say please? Yeah. Did she clean her room? Yeah. But she just beat up her sister and didn't rectify this. So what would I, would I be a loving parent, a good parent to say, sure, sweetie, hop in the car. Bye, Tessa. There's a Band-Aid in the cabinet. Right now. No, that wouldn't be like, no, 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 no. You're not going to your friend's house. Go, you're going to go fix this with your sister. That's what God's saying to Israel. Well, you're coming to me? You want me to step in? You want to feel close to me? And the way you're treating each other, the way you're treating the poor and the vulnerable among you, really? You can't expect me to step in. I love you too much to allow that. Verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and, sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? So he's like, do you think that's what I want? Just like you to go through these religious motions? You fast, you abstain from food, you, you, you know, bow your head, you pretend like you're humble, and you wallow in sackcloth and ashes. You know, if you say, no, talking to us, like, is this what, you, what I want? You to read your Bible, and you go to church, and you sing these songs, and you volunteer, but then you Monday morning, you go back, and, and you ignore the poor, and you ignore the person who lives down the street who's struggling, and, 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 and you, you refuse to, to, to rectify the situations at your job where people are are being oppressed and taken advantage of. Is that what you really think that I want from you? Verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. To fast one day and abstain from food, God is saying, should lead to your heart going, ah, I need to fix some of these injustices around me. Remember, justice biblically is not just retrib retributive justice. It's not just punishing the guilty. It's also lifting up those who are at a disadvantage. It's, it's, it's charity that God called his people to that wasn't optional. So God's saying, if you're going to fast, it should lead to you making changes in how you deal with people around you. In protecting the vulnerable, not exploiting them, not ignoring them. It's lifting the heavy yokes that are on people, the heavy burdens that are on them, not adding to their heavy yokes. It should lead to you saying, forgive me for, for taking advantage of my poor migrant workers in my business and on my land. And forgive me for not looking after that single mom who I know lives next door and is struggling, but I've been too busy chasing the American dream to do anything about it. Verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Again, if you're going to abstain from food, it should lead to others having more food. That's what he's saying. This is the fast I've called you to so that other people have more food, other people have more clothes. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Some believe that's, that, that's a reference to relatives 
ignoring relatives who are needy. Um, and some think that it, it, it may just be a reference to treating other human beings like they're less than, like they're not true human beings. Either way, you get the point. Whoever is vulnerable around us, we should be seeing them and stepping in. If we're going to afflict ourselves with hunger, it should lead to those who are hungry having their affliction relieved. Practically speaking, by the way, many um, understood this at the time that um, fasting should have been, you know, the way that they had food is, we, we, you know, they didn't have refrigerators and freezers. So if they're going to skip a meal and go without food, that meal, there's a, there was a correlation between taking that meal and giving it to somebody who hadn't eaten in a while. Like there, there, there should have been a correlation. It's not just skipping this meal and I'm, I'm going to let the bread go, go bad. I'm going to give it to somebody who needs bread, Right? These rich folks weren't doing that. Verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Remember, they're waiting on God to step in. They're wanting God to step into their situations. And God's saying, then it'll happen. Then your righteousness will go before, before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He'll be a protector. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he'll say, here am I. Then you'll hear from me. Then I'll step in in these situations. He's saying, don't just pray and read scripture and fast and go to church and wonder why you're not seeing breakthrough if you're ignoring the hungry and the naked and the homeless around you. But if you turn your attention to them, then I'm going to step in. You'll experience a refreshing. You'll experience a healing. You'll experience my very presence in a way that fills you if you do away, let's keep going. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger, that's the, the, the Hebrew is the sending of the finger. It's, it's similar to our version of giving somebody the finger. It's treating somebody with contempt. It's treating with them as if they are less than a human being. And malicious talk. Verse 10, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, spend yourselves in Hebrew is spend your soul. Give your soul. That's what it is. If you give your soul. So it's not just throw a few dollars into a pan outside of Walmart. It's give your soul on behalf of the hungry. And satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Satisfy the needs is also satisfy the soul. So you see the connection there? If you spend your soul on behalf of the hungry, and then satisfy the soul of the oppressed. This costs us more than just a few dollars here, and then we can move on. It costs us attention, and prayer, and energy, and emotion. Give your soul. Give your soul to the hungry. Satisfy the whole soul of the afflicted. Imagine pouring ourselves out like that. Many of you do. I know some of you who do this. But imagine us all doing it. Imagine the church as a whole doing it. Imagine us doing it more. My temptation, our temptation perhaps, is, is hell-bent on protecting ourselves. We will give so long as it doesn't cost us much. We will give our old clothes to the poor if they don't fit anymore. We will give the food that we don't like or is about to go bad to the poor. We will give at CVS the $4.75 
thing that we're buying and they say, do you want change on your $5 bill or do you want to give it to St. Jude's? You can give it to St. Jude's. I'm such a good guy, right? But that's not giving your soul on behalf of the afflicted. God is calling us to pour out ourselves, our souls for the poor and the needy around us. And I know, I know many of us are like, but Chris, Pastor Chris, I am drained. Life is draining. I've got my own problems. My family's broken. My marriage is broken. My health is broken. There's a gloominess over my family. I need to focus on that. And I get it. I get it. I get the temptation. I put out a video this past week about the discouragement and the disgruntledness that many are facing in our church, asking us to be praying for each other. First year of the new year, as I said in the beginning of service, there was a, a kind of a gloom, it seemed, over our church. And somebody, well, my temptation was, ah, maybe we don't need a justice series. We need to talk about how God's going to just encourage you and fill you and whatnot. And somebody even suggested, maybe you should change the series and do something else. And I thought about that. And then I was drawn to this passage. And I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. Look at the promise here. Look at what God's promising. If we pour ourselves out for the people that his soul is caring for. Look at the promise. Then your light will rise in the darkness. And your night will become like the noonday. Now again, this is not to say that any time we're dealing with discouragement or pain or hardship and it seems like God's slow to answer, that it's because we're not doing enough for the poor. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's possible. It's possible that maybe, maybe, maybe we are not sharing God's heart horizontally for the people around us. And we're just going, God, what the heck? What the heck? Just like my daughter in that makeup, made up situation. Daddy, why can't I go to my friend's house? Daddy, why can't I? While her sister's lying in the floor bleeding out of her nose. Right? Like, care your, take care of your sister first. Verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. So where it seems like you aren't going to get what you need because it's sun-scorched, right? We don't get the plants and the harvest and the food because it's sun-scorched. I'm going to satisfy your needs. I'll strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden. Like a spring whose waters never fail. That's a, what a promise. A spring whose waters never fail? What kind of spring is that? Whose waters never fail? We're always worried about our waters running out, aren't we? That's why we get self-protective and a little stingy. I'm to take care of myself. I got to put my own um, oxygen mask on. We have all these you know, analogies that we use. I got to take care of me first. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. So do you see the picture? Here's a summary. God's saying, exercise your faith in me by pouring yourself out for the needy. And then that faith in me will be rewarded by me refilling you. You show your trust in me by pouring yourself out for those in need. And that shows that you, you believe that I'm going to fill you. This is not God saying you earn your way into my favor by giving. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying you are positioning yourself under the faucet of my blessing. And when you get self-protective and you start to hoard and you start to get stingy and you start to oppress and in your fear, you start to hold others down. Oh no, if I let them come up, they're going to take more from me. I got to hold them down. You are walking away from the faucet of my blessing. He's saying, or you can position yourself back up under it. 
pour your soul out for those around you. And when it feels like you're getting empty, go, I know God's going to fill me. I know God's going to fill me. Uh, we're like a sponge. We're letting ourselves be squeezed out for the things that God cares about. And then instead of fearing, oh no, I'm going to be dry. God, I know you're going to refill me. I know you're going to refill me. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he's asking of us. So if you have a need, we prayed for many earlier. If you have a need, if you're struggling, there's conflict, there's fear, there's anxiety. Is there a cloud over your family, your life group, your youth group? Ask yourself, man, is there a person or a group that I need to pour myself out for? That exercises faith in our God. I want to give us five practical prayer points as I close. If you're taking notes or you haven't been taking notes, maybe jot these prayer points down. Or you could just take a photo on the screen. Ways to be praying. Ways to be praying. Number one, don't feel guilty for being rich, but ask God how to use your riches to lift others up. No need to, for any of us to feel guilty for being rich. Some folks might be thinking, Chris, are you saying I must just enable lazy people? Maybe you're thinking that. No, not at all. People should work. People should work hard. That's a biblical principle. But as Martin Luther King also said, he said, you can't tell a man to pick himself up by his bootstraps if he doesn't even have a boot. If there are systems and laws that are holding him down, he, he needs a boot. Two years ago, Tom Sargent and I did a series of podcasts on justice. We, we talked about justice for the unborn. Uh, we, we talked about justice for the fatherless. We did three on fatherlessness. And one guy who grew up in Camden talked about uh, not having a father. His father took off when he was young, and he was trying to stay on the straight and narrow. But eventually, because he was poor, he started stealing, and he got into this cycle, and he couldn't get out of it. And as we were listening to his story, I remember Tom saying this. He was like, now I get it. Now I get Like, I can't just tell somebody, come on, be a law-abiding citizen. Everything will work out for you. Right? Because it's like, you, you get stuck in this cycle. And that man said what he needed was to be brought into a church. Somebody invited him to a church. And then in that church, he was able to see, he was an African-American. He said, I needed to see other African-American men who were successful, who were uh, taking care of their families, who, 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 were, who were making money in, 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 in legal ways. He said, I need to see that because I had never seen that before. And they started to pour into me. So he needed somebody, the church, to step in and give him a boot. Right? So he can see, oh, I can do this. I can do this. That's what God's asking of us as a church. Intervene for those who are poor and needy and stuck in cycles. It might mean helping somebody apply for the social programs that are available to them that they don't know about. It might mean helping somebody else get off a social program because they've become too dependent and they need to start working again. It's different for different situations and people. It may mean giving us of our money to someone. And it may mean in certain times saying, I can't give you any more money. Instead, I'm going to give you the time to help train you, apprentice you, or fill out a resume, or, or, or come up with a resume, or fill out an application. It's different. Sometimes giving money is our easy way out. We buy ourselves. We go, let me throw some money at this. So I, leave me alone now. Right? And sometimes God say, no, I want you to pour your soul out for them. So it's different. So that's where we have to be praying. Number two, ask God how to help those in close geographic proximity to you. 
We look at the world. We look at the stats. We can get overwhelmed. But just say, God, who's close to me? Who's a neighbor? Who do I work with? Who do I go to school with that may be struggling, that may need help, that I can step in for, that I can help apply for a job or give them driving lessons because they are here from another country and don't have a driving license yet? Number three, pray about how your life group or youth group can help a particular vulnerable group. We have different groups, right? You are in them. We have a youth group. Our youth right now is sorting through winter clothes donations that come in at First Baptist Church. That's where they meet. They, they sort through the donations. They set them up. That's a good thing. That's awesome. So what else? Maybe you're in a group. It doesn't matter if you're in a group that's studying the book of James. You can still say, hey guys, what can we do together to serve a, a particular group out there? Maybe your group can sponsor a family like we did at Christmas time in Brick. We sponsored a few families for Christmas. Maybe if you sponsored a family, maybe you could follow up with them. Hey, what's another need coming up that maybe our group can help you with? Come alongside you for. Delani, like I said, is spearheading a, a group that teaches English to the Hispanic community. They're starting back up. He doesn't need volunteers for that yet, but maybe you can ask him, hey, what can our group do for them? Maybe there's other needs beyond learning English that we can help. Delani, would you stand up for a second so people know who you are? There's Delani. He's spearheading the ESL group. You can ask him afterwards. What else can we do? Last year there was a group, and there still is, it's ongoing, uh, who has been committed to uh, sponsoring and caring for a family from Afghanistan giving them driving lessons, uh, helping with uh, finding a job and, and, and the medical care that they need, navigating doctor's visits, tons of stuff. Each thing is small in some ways, but it adds up to make a big impact. Number four, ask God what else our church can do that other organizations and churches are not doing. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. Really pray about this. Because after a message like this, the temptation is, oh, I know about this or I know about that. You know, email pastor, goes, oh, slow down on that. Because there's a lot of organizations that are doing a lot of things. I want to pause and go, let's not just be quick to jump on the bandwagon if other organizations are doing things. What's not being done? Sometimes that's too easy to go, oh, let's just, you know, hitch a, our wagon to this organization. What's not being done? Our staff recently met with a guy who runs a nonprofit uh, that connects people to the resources that are out there. So let's say there is a Hispanic community or a Hispanic family uh, that doesn't know English. They need medical care. Um, and, you know, so he's got a list. Oh, go here. Go here in this town. Or food banks. Here's a list of the food banks. Um, we asked him. We said, hey, what's a need right now? That's a big need, but very few organizations are providing it. Immediately he said, Housing. I don't know if that's something for our church to step into, but be praying. Maybe there's something else like that. We can't do everything. Can't do everything. Talked about that last week. Can't do everything. And maybe different groups can do different things. Um, but let's be praying. Let's be praying. Let's be praying. And then finally, 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 this overlaps with all of them. Think small and think long. Don't think big. Think small and think long. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we want to make a big splash, right? And we want to do it as like a one-time event. Let's just do a huge clothing drive. One time. And then we can put our names on the banner. And then while everybody's here, we can give out our cards and invite them to church. And it's a big splash. And listen, listen, listen. There's a place for that. 
We've done stuff like that. I'm not trying to knock it. But oftentimes to really help somebody in the way that Martin Luther King wanted to help was to, it was, it was long and there was logistics to think through and there was planning and it was pouring your soul out. It wasn't a one day splash. It was thinking in small steps for the long haul. First Baptist Church of Manasquan, they have a small food pantry that serves small community of Manasquan. But it's open 24-7. And they've been serving them constantly for 24-7 for years. And they don't just do that. They, because many of the poor in that community are Hispanic, they are doing ESL classes there on Monday nights. Because they're trying to say, we want to help you get a boot so you can, right, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We want to help you with the boot. We want to come alongside you. And that takes a lot of work and energy. So think small, think long. I don't know what God's going to show us. I don't know what God's going to show you. But I'm really asking you and urging you to pray. To pray, to be ready to pour yourself out for others. And to trust that God will refresh you. The time, the energy it takes. Maybe it's a Saturday morning that you don't want to give up. But God's saying, no, 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 step into this. I'll refresh you. Your Saturdays will be more refreshing than they would be if you spent the morning watching TV. I'll refresh you more. I promise. Trust me. And he gets the glory in the world. And we get to see him provide for not only us, but those who he calls us to serve. Martin Luther King, in his letters from a Birmingham jail, he, one of the things he said was this. It struck me. I was reading it this past week. He said, but the judgment, remember this is 1963. The judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. That was 1963. Young people that he was encountering saying, why isn't the church doing more? I do not want to rail against Christ's bride, his church, but I just want us to just say, God, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be seen as irrelevant, not caring. I don't want to be seen like those Israelites in Isaiah's day doing the religious practices, but ignoring the vulnerable around us, being partakers of the exploitation and the abuse of them. So can we stand? I'm going to pray and then we'll dismiss. No. I'm going to ask Pastor Rigo to pray and he'll dismiss. Thanks, Chris. You know, going back to the time of prayer, as I was praying for people and just seeing everyone worshiping and seeking prayer, one thing the Lord spoke to my heart and the inside was, sometimes my people forget that I'm a deliverer and I deliver my people. All they have to do is cry out to me. Cry out for yourself, cry out for other people. Do what he tells you to do out in society and in our community, but don't forget to cry out to God. Let him hear your voice. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to help you. You're not alone. 
Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this message, Lord. We thank you for our time together here. Thank you for encouraging our hearts. And thank you, Lord, we're not alone. And help us, Lord, as we pray about these prayer points. What is our part, Lord? Show us what the part is of True Life Church and also what is our part individually and also in our life groups, Lord God. Show us, Lord God, how to just reach people and love people and show them your justice and love. In Jesus' name, amen.